So good morning, Journey Church. I'm Jim, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm thrilled that you could be with us this morning. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. We're going to dive right into part six of our series. We're actually concluding a series that we've called You Are Not the Boss of Me. You're Not the Boss of Me. Um, <clears throat> throughout this series, we've, the, the, the tagline that we've, we've really kind of strung along with this is how to control the things that compete for control of your life or compete for control of your, your emotions that compete for control of your moods or your mouth. How to say no to the emotions that compete for control because we all have things that compete for control. We all have things that, that want to that wanna fight uh, and, and really kind of gain control of us. And by the gaining control of our moods and our mouths, um, they kind of gain control of our lives. Jesus said what's on the inside eventually comes out on the outside, and that's what controls you. That's what defiles you. So that's what you need to be careful of. Uh, we started this whole series off with, with, with this main idea here, and then I, I gave you this poem. And I'm sure many of you committed it to memory, um, but we're just going to re- recite it again together. Here's, uh, here's the poem that I kind of started off with. Our need of supervision may someday come to an end if we silence the toxic voices that come from within. This is kind of where we're, we're headed. Our, our need for supervision, that there's some, at some point in our lives, you and I can live without anybody telling us what to do if we, learn, if we kind of silence those voices from within, if we learn to silence them, if we learn not to just monitor our behavior, but to monitor what's going on in our hearts. Jesus, again, he said, whatever's on the inside, whatever's in your heart, that's what comes out. And that's, that's the thing that kind of dictates that it's going to run your life. So be careful what's on the inside. There's a, a guy you probably heard of. His name's Tim Ferriss. In a podcast, he interviewed this artist named Amanda Palmer, and, and she quoted something that her friend told her. So this is like three or four ways down the road. I don't know who said the line. I know Amanda Palmer quoted it on this. And, and here's the line she said that I thought was absolutely brilliant. She said, if you don't deal with your demons, they go into the cellar of your soul and lift weights. It's a great line, isn't it? The only thing I don't like about it is that I didn't come up with it on my own. It's so true, isn't it? There are things in our life that that... If we're not careful, they come back to get us. We, we think we've dealt with it. Maybe it was something that happened in your childhood or something that happened to you when you were in high school. It was just something that happened to you, and it wasn't your fault, but it happened. And we tend to, to, to skirt these things aside and, and think we've dealt with it, but we've done nothing to actually deal with it. The thing is, these things don't go away. To use her words, they, they climb into the cellar of your soul, and they lift weights, and they get stronger and stronger and stronger, and eventually... They come back and they begin to ruin you. They begin to ruin your life. They begin to ruin your relationships if you're not careful. That's what we want to be careful of. We want to make sure that, that the things that are on the inside of you, that they don't come back to control you. We, we've talked about a few things in this series so far. We've talked about um, uh, fear. We've talked about guilt. We've talked about anger. We've talked about envy. And, and these are all things that we can kind of see, things that are easy enough to see from the outside looking in uh, um, and how we kind of deal with them and, and confront them. But, but there's something I want to talk about today. We're going to go in a little bit of a different direction because what we want to talk about today are, are things that we, we don't actually, we can't actually see very well. We're going to talk about th- these destructive emotions that disguise themselves as virtues. Destructive emotions that disguise themselves as good things, that they, they, they kind of disguise themselves as compassion and caring and loving and, and, and being sensitive. And, and we, 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 we wrap up this, this idea that, that I'm doing the right thing by not doing anything. And we know that that's not how life goes, is it? That's not how we're supposed to be. We know this as adults, that sometimes caring doesn't always feel like caring, does it? We know this as adults, that loving doesn't always feel like loving. If you're a parent, you know this. If you're a parent, there's going to come a point, and this is, I think, like the right of every parent, that at some point in your life as a parent, you're going to do something that are going to make your kids hate you. And you may even hear them say, Mom, I hate you, or Dad, I hate you. And we don't want that. Like, we don't want to be that. But we also know that sometimes doing the caring thing and doing the loving thing 
it doesn't always feel like caring or loving. And, and maybe you're on the flip side of that. Maybe you were the child and your parent did something to you that made you hate them. And you look as your child, you just thought, they're the worst. I hate my parents. And then you grew up and you look back on what they did. And what did you think? I am so glad they did that. I'm so glad they said that. I'm so glad they stepped in. I'm so glad they did the caring thing, even though at the time it didn't feel too much like caring. You see, and a lot of us, we learn this as parents, but a lot of us in our adult lives, a lot of us as emerging adults, we tend not to act on these things, do we? We tend not to act, and we do things like this. We say, we don't want to do this because there's the fear of rejection, right? There's, I don't want to say things. I don't want to confront things because there's this, this discomfort with, with conflict, right? We're, we're conflict averse. I would rather not say anything. I'm, I'm anti-confrontational. There's apprehension around confrontation. And we kind of wrap these up to look really nice. But really what, we, what we're doing, we're just disguising what we're actually feeling, isn't it? What we're actually feeling is fear, discomfort, and apprehension. And we say, well, I'm being sensitive. And the truth is, no, we're just worried about us. We're being rather insensitive to somebody. Because I'm fearful, and I'm uncomfortable, and I feel apprehensive. So I'd rather not say anything. I'd rather not do anything. And, and there's an, another uh, emotion that we have that kind of lingers, that kind of hides, that kind of cloaks itself. And, and this is a, a really tough one. This one is indifference. Indifference isn't something you can always see. Indifference isn't really an emotion. It isn't even, um, it isn't even a reaction. It isn't caring. It's, it's, it's a lack of emotion. It's a lack of concern where there should be some concern. It's, it's the lack of something. It's, it's like we look out at people, and, and we never say things like this, but right, we, we look out and we say, oh, I, you know, I see what he's doing in his marriage, and if he keeps doing that, his marriage is going to implode and it's going to wreck, but I don't care. I, we, we never say, you know, I, I see what this, this loan he's about to take out, and if he does it, financial ruin for his family, his career's going to go away, his life's going to be wrecked, but I just don't care. No, what we say, we say things like this. We, we, we just say, well, you know, I, I shouldn't interfere. Don't we? I, I, just, I shouldn't interfere. That, that's, that's not my concern. That's their concern, and it would be rude of me. It, it's, it's really what it is. It's, it's just d- discomfort, but it's really, it would be rude of me to interfere. I just shouldn't interfere. Or, or how about this one? They haven't asked me for my input. So I'm, I'm just not going to give it. If they really wanted to know what I think, they would come and they'd ask me. Or, or here's the best one. I love this one. This is the one we use all the time. It's really just none of my business. It's none of my business. Their marriage isn't any of my business. Their career, their life, their relationships, it's, it's none of my business. I just shouldn't interfere because it's really just, it, it's none of my business. And what ends up happening is, is it's these things that end up controlling us and, and causing us not to act when we should act when we should do the thing that would make us uncomfortable. What's happening is that fear, discomfort, apprehension, and indifference have become the boss of us. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but here's what I know. No one wants fear to be the boss of you, do you? I mean, no one would say, I want fear to run my life. I want, I want discomfort to run my life. I want apprehension and indifference to run my life. I, I, I want to say, I'll never do those things because I'm so scared. I'm just, I'll never take a step because I'm just so nervous. No one wants this to be the boss of us. But more often than not, this is what we allow to become our boss. You see, here's the thing. If you're a Jesus follower, you can't listen to those voices. You can't listen to the fear. You can't listen to the apprehension. You can't listen to the worry. Because somebody spoke louder than your fear and your indifference and your discomfort. Your good shepherd spoke louder, and he said some things that are going to take you to some really uncomfortable places. 
As a matter of fact, we're, I'm going to give you his bottom line up front, and then we're going to kind of go back and give you some context and explain it. But if you can only be with us for a few minutes, here's what Jesus said. He said, if your brother or sister sins, and when he's talking about brother or sister, he's not talking about your literal brother or sister. He's talking about anybody in a relationship, like your family, your friends, people you care about, your neighbor, whoever it might be. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. I don't know, as soon as we hear that, what all of us are thinking. <laughs> That's reason enough not to be a Jesus follower, right? If I wasn't a Jesus follower before, I'm not a Jesus follower now because I don't want to do that. But let me ask you a question, and then we'll dive into it. You may not want to do that, but, but isn't there a, a point in your life where you wished somebody would have done that for you or for your parents? Where they saw them going down a road they know would lead to destruction, but everybody was like, well, it's not my business. I can't interfere. They didn't ask me. You wish somebody would have stepped up and said, don't do that. Don't go there. Shouldn't you be that for somebody else? I'm going to give you some context to this, and this is a really interesting story with Jesus. He's with his disciples, as he always is. At the time, the disciples came to Jesus, and they asked, who? Who, Jesus, is then greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And, and these, they're not asking about, like, the heaven, like the kingdom to come, the heaven we all dream about with pearly gates and, you know, streets of gold. They're, they're, they're asking about the heaven that he's establishing, this new heaven, this, this new kingdom, this, this new kingdom with, with, you know, new values, this new thing Jesus is establishing. Hey, Jesus, who's going to be greatest in this new kingdom you're, you're setting up? And when they're all kind of, like, secretly hoping, Jesus is going to turn around and say, well, it's going to be one of you guys. Like, maybe it's Peter or Matthew. Maybe it's got to be John. And Jesus answers in a completely different way. I love this. He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And if you're there, if you're part of this discussion, if you're one of the apostles, you're probably thinking what they would be thinking. I didn't ask for the smallest. I didn't ask who would be the, the youngest in the kingdom or the smallest. I asked for the greatest, Jesus. Who would be the greatest? And Jesus answers. I love this. Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like this little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And they're completely taken back. Jesus, what do you mean by this? He goes on. If anyone causes one of these little ones, and when he says little ones, he's now kind of branched out from just talking about a child. Sometimes we read this and we think he's only talking about children. No, he's talking about people who follow him. The way he uses this language, he used it before, he's going to use it later, and then he even explains it. If anyone causes one of these little ones, one of these people who believe in me, one of these new believers or people who are just getting their life right, they're just coming back to church, they're just engaging with faith again or with Jesus, no, they're kind of walking the walk. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, that is to get tripped up, to kind of fall away or stumble away is what he's going to refer to later as they kind of stumble away and stumble off path, to fall down, to get tripped up. It would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. I mean, that's extreme. That's graphic. He's, he's saying it would be better to have that large stone that, you know, the donkeys move around to crush grapes and make wine. That, that, that stone, it would be better to have it tongue, tied around your neck and for you to be thrown into the sea and drowned. I mean, it sounds graphic. I mean, it might even sound like hyperbole, but he's, he's taking this extreme point because he's trying to, to, to make an extreme point. This is very extreme. And why is it so extreme? Because his love for us is so extreme that it would cause him to go to extremes. It'd be better to have a large millstone hung around their neck and then to be drowned in the depths of the sea. And then I love this next word. We don't use this in our language anymore, but it, it just has so much, like, action or kind of meaning to it. Whoa, he says, whoa. Like, hey, I've got your attention now. Don't miss this. Woe to the world 
because of these things that cause people to stumble. Woe to the world. These things are going to happen. They are going to happen. He says, such things must come. They're going to happen. Things that trip us up, it's going to come along. There are going to be things that happen in your life. There's going to be things that happen when you're a child or you're a teenager, you're in high school, you're an adult. There's going to be things that come along and trip you up. But woe to the person through whom they come. Or the way we would say it here is, don't be somebody's regret. You've heard us say this before. Don't be somebody's regret. Don't be the person through whom these bad things come. When somebody thinks about their life and thinks about you, they shouldn't look back and say, you know, I was doing fine until I met, and then like throw in your name. Until I met Brian, I was doing great. My marriage was doing fine until my husband met, and then throw in your name. I I was doing great in my life. I was overcoming these challenges. I was living the right life until so-and-so came along. They shouldn't look back on you and think of you as regret. They shouldn't look back on you and see the person through whom those things have come. Don't be somebody's regret. They should look back on you and they should think, my life changed in an amazing way when I met them. Don't be the person through whom these things come. Jesus says, woe to them. This is extreme. Don't allow that to be you. Don't be that person. And then he takes it to another extreme measure. He says, if your foot causes you to stumble... Cut it off and throw it away. Now, if you're online, don't check out now because you're going to hear something and you're going to check out here and think we're a bunch of nuts. Don't leave early if you have to leave early. He's not being literal, okay? He's not saying cut your foot off. It'd be better for you to cut your foot off. Although there are a group of people like hundreds of years after Jesus who took all of his teachings and practiced it literally and, you know, they kind of stumbled around the rest of their life. Um, That's not what he's saying. He's basically saying this, if something's causing you, if if something in your life that you have control over is now competing for control over you, get rid of it. Throw it, you have control. Remember you have control. Get those things out of your life. Don't allow these things to control you. He takes it another step further. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. And again, here's the word, throw it away. Get rid of the things in your life that are going to cause you to trip up or going to cause you to trip somebody else up, that are going to cause you to to cause somebody else to stumble. Don't allow these things in your life. Remember, you have control. Take some extreme extreme measures. Get rid of the things in your life that are competing for control over you. Why would Jesus do this? Because God loves you so extremely. So extremely much that God would even go to extreme measures for you. He's saying, if you love me, if you love God, this is what you should do as well. It's going to require some extreme responses. Because, he goes on, it is better to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes. And here's the word again, to be thrown into the fire of Gehenna. And what he's talking about here is it would be better for you to take control of the things in your life that you can take control of, than to allow these things to control and dominate you and have your life thrown into chaos, thrown into utter chaos. Because that's what happens. When we allow these things that we thought we dealt with, these these demons, and hopefully for you they're not literal demons, but these things on the inside that go into the cell of your soul and lift weights, when we allow them to stay there, they come back and they compete for control and they throw our life into chaos. And this word Gehenna here, this is a literal place on the south side of Jerusalem. About a hundred or so years before Jesus was, was actually doing this teaching to these Hebrew people, these Israelite people, this was the place where, where the, the Israelites would take their children and offer their children as sacrifices to a pagan god called Molech. And God judged the nation. 
This was a, a place that the, the Hebrew people saw as, as cursed. It became the, the trash dump for the entire nation. I mean, things just burned there, and it stank, and it was awful. It was chaos. It was cursed. He's using extreme language to make an extreme point. Don't allow your life to be thrown into chaos. Because if it's thrown into chaos, what happens? You literally feel like you're living in hell. And some of you have seen people who've experienced that. Some of you have perhaps experienced that. You've allowed things in your life to begin to take control. And it caused you to do things you don't want to do. And it set your life into chaos. And your chaos felt like hell. Jesus says, don't. Don't allow those things to control you. Get rid of those things. Push them out of your life. I mean, so many of us, we look back and we think, we, think we, would, we wish we never did it, right? Have any of you ever stumbled? You don't have to raise your hand. I know we've all stumbled at some point. We, we've all done things we wish we wouldn't have done. We, we wish we, if we could go back that we, that we would take it back. You, you, you got a phone call and, and you just, you wish now looking back, you never answered it. You got a text message and you wish you deleted it, but instead you responded to it. That first time you took a drink, you look back now and you think, God, I wish I just, I poured it out and I never took the drink. Because that thing spiraled out of control and became an addiction and it dominated my life. And my life felt like hell. He's saying, don't allow those things to control you. Get rid of them. Throw them away from you. Or your life will feel like hell on earth. And then Jesus switches He's talking with his disciples, and he switches for a minute, and he gets, he gets really personal. And I love the fact that he did this. He's, I would love to be around Jesus in this moment. He now looks out at his disciples, and he asks them a question. What do you think? I mean, can you imagine being with Jesus and, and being that close to your Savior that he's concerned about what you think about what he just said? Hey, what do you think about this? I mean, if you're smart, you, you reply, well, I'm, I'm not going to say what I think because I'm probably wrong. But the fact that he's concerned, what do you think about all this? Disciples don't say much. And then Jesus jumps into a parable that we've all heard, that we've heard many times, we've talked about it here. <clears throat> but he takes this parable into a different context. Keep in mind, as Jesus was on earth, he was only teaching for about three years. So he used a lot of the same stories, a lot of the same parables, and he repeated them over and over and over so that the people he was teaching to wouldn't forget them, that they would remember them even when he left. So he jumps into this parable that he's used before, that we've heard before, but he takes it from a different perspective into a different context. He's, he says this. He says, if a man owns 100 sheep and one of them wanders away, and we're thinking, well, we, we would never own 100 sheep. Everyone there would own 100 sheep. They're already keeping up with the story. Of course, if a man owns 100 sheep and one of them wanders away, <clears throat> what, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? If, you know, we're not farmers. We're not herdsmen. We have no idea how to answer. And they're thinking, of course he would. That's exactly what you do. You, if one of the sheep kind of stumbles away, to use Jesus' word, kind of trips away or falls away or, or, or kind of loses its way from the crowd, we would go and we'd find it, right? We'd go and we'd look for the one thing that kind of wandered off. And then Jesus says, and if he finds, if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about the one sheep than he is about the 99 that didn't wander off. That's just an incredible, of course he is. I mean, let me ask you, have you ever lost something? We've all lost something, right? And he's kind of leading us down this path of, of, of when you lose something, you're so happy that you found the thing. Even if you already have a bunch of other things that you own, you're so happy about what you lost that this isn't just a human reaction. He now connects it to the Father. He says, in the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. 
In the same way, your father feels the exact same. I mean, think about this. Have you ever lost a credit card? Let's just, I mean, you, you lose a credit card, you have a bunch of credit cards in your wallet, and you look in, and one's not there, and suddenly panic sets in. Where's my credit card? What, what did I do with my credit card? N- none of us kind of look at our wallet and pull out the other four credit cards we have and go, oh, I'm good. I've got four here. I'm not worried about that one. No, we're worried. You know, we're checking our accounts, making sure no one's buying anything ridiculous. We're, we're calling all the places we've been. We're worried about the one card that's lost to the exclusion of the four cards that are safe, that are secure, that are exactly where they're, they're the good cards. They didn't wander off. They didn't stumble away. They stayed in the wallet. They stayed in the purse. They're, they're good. But we're worried about the one that's lost. And then, we, you know, we're not sure. Did, <clears throat> did I leave it at the bar? Did I leave it at the restaurant? Did I give it to my daughter to go to the mall? Where's my credit card? And then we stumble outside and we find the credit card on the side of, of the car when we got out. We're so excited, we pick it up and we throw a party. Look, I found my credit card. Okay, there's clearly some exaggeration there. But you get the point. This is, this is kind of built into us. When we lose something of value, we'll do whatever it takes to find it. And then we celebrate when we find it, regardless of all the other things we have. And said, your heavenly father feels the exact same way. For, for some of you, this may hit really personal right now. Maybe you're here because, you know, you, you thought, my life's a mess and i got to get my life right, but I don't know if God will have me back. I don't know if the church will have me back. I'm, I'm, really, I'm only here because somebody invited me here. Maybe they bribed me with lunch or a good cup of coffee. I'm only watching because someone told me I had to watch. But things are beginning to feel a little uncomfortable for you. Here, here's what you need to know. Your Heavenly Father is more excited about what's going on in you right now than he is about what's going on in, in me. And I'm a professional. Your heavenly father loves you so much. He is so glad that one of these little ones is becoming found than he is about what's going on in my life right now. Jesus makes it even more personal for us. <clears throat> we hear this and we think, Jesus, this is amazing. This all sounds great. Jesus, I, I mean, can we just end here? Because this is awesome. I shouldn't cause other people to stumble, and if there's something that's causing me to stumble, I should just get rid of it because I don't want my life to kind of spiral into chaos and go out of control. And you love me so much that when, when I do that and I begin to get things right, you're like, heaven is rejoicing. Every, God's excited. That's amazing, Jesus. Can we just end here? And he said, no, 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 no. Hang on, guys. We're not finished. And then he makes it uncomfortable. He says, if your brother or sister sins, if you see somebody you love, if you see somebody you know, if you see somebody you care about, and they're beginning to sin, they're beginning to get tripped up, they're beginning to stumble, go and point out their fault. And we're thinking, Jesus, I, nah. <laughs> nah, I don't want to do that. I, I, I don't, I don't want to take that step. I don't want to be uncomfortable. I, I don't want to do those things. Can I just pray about it? He says, whether you like it or not, I want you to go. I want you to go and point out their fault. And then he says this. He says, I, I want it to be personal. Sometimes when we do this, our reaction is, I know someone's failing, so I'm just going to go pray about it, or I'm just going to offer up a prayer request, right? And we kind of gossip about it, don't we, right? We say a prayer request, and we say things, and I'm going to use somebody you know because it's always funnier when I pick on him anyway. I have this friend, and his name's Brian. And you know who Brian is, but I'm not going to give you his last name because that, you know, that would make it weird. But we'll just say his last name starts with a K. He's really not doing well. He's really done some bad things. He's messed up his life. He's messed up his marriage. You just need to pray for Brian K. Can we all just, can we all just pray for Brian K? And because we noticed the fault in somebody else, instead of going to point out, we just decided to pray about it and gossip about it. 
Jesus references that too. He says, no, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and I want you to point out their fault. And I want to keep you to keep it just between the two of you. And I, I know what we're thinking, right? We're all thinking the same thing. But Jesus, this is what we say. Jesus, it's, it's none of my business. And what does Jesus say? I just made it your business. I just made it your business because here's the thing. Because it's my business. Because I love them so much. And if you love me, you should love them so much that you'd make it your business as well. And now we're all uncomfortable. Jesus, I, I can follow you to a lot of places, but I don't know that I want to follow you here. He says, if they listen, be glad because you have won them over. And we're thinking, oh, that's great. Right? They'll, they'll thank us. They'll be so excited. But that's usually not how the story goes, is it? But if they will not listen, well, I can just say I've done my part. I was the good Christian, right? I should get the award. I, I did the uncomfortable thing. I had the confrontation. I had the conversation. The relationship might never be the same, but you can pat me on the back because I did my job and I can go away. He says, no, no, no. I want you to take it even further. He says, if they don't listen, take one or two others along with you so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And now we're thinking, this sounds really serious. Is this like court? Like, are we lawyers and attorneys, Jesus? Like, what is going on here? He keeps going. Don't allow your indifference. Don't allow your insecurities to be the boss of you. He says, if they still refuse to listen, Jesus, we're, we're still going? Can't we be done? If they still refuse to listen, Jesus, this is so uncomfortable. I don't want to do this anymore. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the assembly. And, and, and the word for assembly in your Bible is ecclesia, which sometimes is translated church, but, but it's, it really should be assembly. It, it, it's a, the gathering of people. I mean, when Jesus taught this, he, there was no church, right, right? The church didn't happen until after he died and was resurrected. So he's not talking about a church. He's talking about th how the people lived their lives in these small kind of Jewish towns. The, the center of their life was the synagogue, and everybody in the synagogue knew everybody, and everybody knew everybody's business. And he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take it to them, to the people that care about them and love them the most and can restore them. Take it to them. In our context, it does not mean we would pull you up in front of the church and confront it before the whole church. I mean, there are people who don't know you and don't love you, and that's weird. And I mean, if any of this was scary, that's really scary. You know, this is the kind of thing that happens in small groups where we challenge each other and we love each other and we care for each other and we know each other's business. And we're brought into the conversation and we have the ability to speak and to confront because we love you and we want to see good happen for you. We want to see you restored. Jesus said, that's what should happen. This isn't about pointing out a problem. This isn't about being better than other people. This is about loving somebody so much you want to see them restored, so much so that you're willing to make yourself a little bit uncomfortable for it. If they refuse to listen, tell it to the assembly. <clears throat> and even if they refuse to listen to the assembly, treat them as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, when I heard this preached as a kid, it was always said, if they refuse to listen even when the church confronts them, then drive them out from among you. Treat them like, like shun them and have nothing to do with them. That's not all what Jesus is saying. And that's, he would never, he, he's never said anything like that. Why would, why would we do that now? He's saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into this conversation with the heart to confront, to, to, to see them restored. 
You see them tripped up in their life. You see them stumbling or someone's causing them to stumble. And you want to see th th their life be better. You don't want to see it implode. You don't want to see it go to disaster. You don't want to see it spin around in chaos. So go to them and confront them. And if it doesn't work, bring somebody else from your group. Bring Phyllis or Joe or John or Chris so that they can, you, you can restore them. And the amazing thing is if they listen, then you become part of their story. <clears throat> They'll say back years and years, I, I, I was on my way. I was about to do something. I was about to, to make a decision that would ruin my life. But, you know, but, but Chris was there, and, and, and Chris helped me, and because of him, I didn't make that decision. Or Phyllis was there, and she saved me from making a bad decision. And if they still refuse to listen, even after you confront with two or three people, then bring them over the whole group so that you can restore them. And if even then they refuse to listen, realize that the two of you just aren't on the same page. All of this, when you go in and you confront them about their marriage, you're assuming you want the same things in life. You have the same goals and the same values. If you confront somebody, a husband, about their, their marriage, and you say, don't do that. That's going to that's gonna make the trust between you and your wife crumble. You're assuming they value and care about the trust they have with their wife. D don't make that decision. D don't, don't take out that loan, because if you do, it's going to drive you bankrupt, and your life's going to fall apart. You're assuming they care about their financial life the way you do. And if you've done all this and they refuse to listen, then you have to assume that they don't have the same values. They don't have the same worldview. Do you love them? Absolutely. Do you care for them? Absolutely. You just care for them differently. Because by, the, by not listening, essentially Jesus is saying, they don't have the same values. They don't have the same worldview. They don't care about living the life the way you've chosen to live by following Jesus. So love them and care for them. But realize it's never going to be the same until they adopt the same values as you. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen, you will have won them over. See, whether you feel like it or not, following Jesus often takes us to some uncomfortable places. My wife and I, we've done this many times. To be honest, we, we, when we first got married, we didn't do it often because we, you know, we use the same excuses. It's none of my business. I don't want to interfere. Hopefully they'll figure I'll just pray. I'll pray God sends somebody else along to kind of do, do what I think he's asking me to do because it's uncomfortable, and I didn't want it to be uncomfortable. And, and if you've been in the same position we are, you look back, and, and now you're filled with remorse and regret because what if I said something and I could have saved it? What, 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 if, what if I did interject? What if I made it my business? I could have saved them from that. So we've just kind of made it a, a point of our life to always have that conversation. That regardless how uncomfortable it gets, to always be the ones who say, you know what, I, I'm going to say it. I'm going to interject. And here's the thing. It doesn't always end well. Very few times we've had people come back, and, and it never ends well at that conversation. Thank you so much for telling me I'm an idiot and I was going to sin. That's a, it never goes like that. But usually months, weeks later, maybe sometimes years later, they come back around and say, thank you. I didn't see it, but thank you for loving me enough to have the conversation. I didn't listen, and I still tripped up, and I, and, and I still made the mistake. But I can look back now and see that the only reason you did that is because you loved me so much. It doesn't always go well. And the truth is, it, it might not go well for you either. But isn't it worth it? Let me ask you a question. You don't, you don't have to answer now, but as I've been talking, isn't there somebody who's come to mind? Maybe somebody you need to have a conversation with? And you're thinking inside, oh, Jim, I don't want to do it. The whole time I'm talking, you're kind of secretly praying, God, let somebody else hear this message so that they can go and they can have the conversation that you're asking me to have because I really don't want to have it. 
Let, let me encourage you, please don't allow fear and discomfort and, and apprehension and indifference to be the boss of you. Don't allow it to run your life so much that you would hold back loving someone else. Loving someone else enough to care for them and say the things that, that nobody else is going to say. Don't let this be the boss of you. Fear, you're not the boss of me. Apprehension, you're not the boss of me. Discomfort, and guys, it's going to be uncomfortable. You are not the boss of me. I'm going to do what I need to do to love them. And, and here's the amazing thing. We're only doing what Jesus did for us. I mean, th think about this. I, on the, the last night of his life with his disciples, he said, guys, I'm going to give you a new, a new command. It's just one command. Don't worry about the ten. Don't worry about the hundreds. If you can do this one thing, you'll do it all. Love everyone the way that I have loved you. If you can love that extreme, you'll do everything else I've asked. And that's just what this is, isn't it? I mean, th that's just loving somebody to the extreme, to be willing to do something that you don't want to do. We talk about it. We even sing about it. We're going to sing about it in just a moment. We, we, we sung about it last week. Here, here's, I love these lyrics. He says this. There's no shadow he won't light up, no mountain he won't climb up, coming after me. And I think to myself, God, I'm so happy. You didn't look at my life and my sin and my situation and say, that's none of my business. I am so thankful that God made my sin his business and did something extreme to save me. There's no wall. Listen, I love the lyrics here. They're just, they're so, like, it, it, the imagery is just so powerful. There's no wall he won't kick down. No lie he won't tear down. The voices that creep up on the inside that continue to tell you to do things you know you shouldn't do. Coming after me. The overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. We hear that word reckless, and I've had so many people ask, well, don't you think saying that God's love is reckless is a little extreme? Yes. But let me ask you this. God announced forgiveness before he sent his son. He saw the world in sin and said, I'm going to do something extreme. I'm going to send my son to do the greatest act of love for the world ever imaginable. And everybody can still reject it. Nobody has to accept his gift. If that's not extreme, I don't know what is. If that doesn't appear reckless, I don't know what is. There's nothing God wouldn't do. There's nothing God hasn't done for you. He'll chase me down. He'll fight till I'm found. And then just like, just like the, the parable we just said, he'll leave the 99 to find the one. And maybe this morning you're the one. Maybe you're sitting next to the one. Maybe you know the one. And God's asking you to leave what's comfortable to go after what's lost, what's been stumbled, what's been tripped up. 100% of the time in my life, when God came after me, when God chased me down, he didn't do it through a vision, he didn't do it through a dream. He sent someone, someone who loved me enough to have an awkward conversation, to say something I knew was right, but I wanted to avoid at all costs. He chased me down. He fought till I was found. He did everything to get me. Guys, love like that would change your life and it would change the world. That's how God loved you. The question is, 
Can you love like that? Who needs to hear from you? Whether you feel like it or not. Who do you have to call? What awkward conversation do you have to have? Don't allow fear to be the boss of you. Don't allow insecurity to be the boss of you. Allow the love of God that loved you so much that it would send his own son to the cross for you. Allow that love to be the boss of you. That love would change your life and it would change the world. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, for this incredible teaching. God, that starts off so nice and so grand and so great. But God, Jesus takes it to such an uncomfortable spot that we just want to avoid this book. I mean, we just want to tear this page out of our Bible because this is uncomfortable. But God, there is so much truth here. There is so much meaning. I pray for every person, God, who would hear this message. Lord, that first of all, they would do some examination. Are they stumbling? Are they being the cause of somebody else to stumble? Would you cause them to, to see that in their own lives, God, and to get rid of it, Lord, to use your words, to cut it and throw it out of their life, to, to not go back to it, to take control of the things they can take control of and to live their life, God, in a way that they would never be someone's regret. I also pray, God, for those of us here who, who God, are, are feeling the stirring, that there are somebody they care about. There is someone who you brought to mind that they love so much that they have to have this awkward conversation. God, at first, I pray that you would give them the courage to do that. And then I pray, Lord, you'd give them the wisdom to know what to say and to how to say it. God, not to bring rebuke because it's, it's easier to point out the fault in someone else. God, but to bring the message of love, to say, I love you so much. I don't want to see your life go into chaos. God, and I pray you would restore them. In Jesus' name, would you be with us? Would you help us to be examiners of our heart and not just our behavior, God? Thank you for it. Amen.